Welcome to the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast, the show that brings you lively conversations with leaders, colleagues, and friends in healthcare, pharmacy, and beyond. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast. I'm Melissa Muir Corrigan, and I'll be your host. This is episode 27 of the Melissa Rx Scripts podcast, and thanks for listening. Well, in March, we celebrate Women's History Month and recognize the important contributions of women in history and society. We also are moving closer to spring, thank goodness, and the pandemic continues with challenges and hope. I'm also grateful for the pharmacists, student pharmacists, and pharmacy technicians caring for patients and working so hard along with the vaccine distribution and administration. Thank you. Well, now on today's podcast, I'll be talking with Wendy Weber. Wendy and I are gonna be discussing many things, including her experiences integrating life and career. Can't wait to hear more. I'll give you a bit of an introduction to Wendy and then also let her tell you about herself, her career and her many varied experiences in life in general. Wendy Weber is a proud pharmacy graduate of North Dakota State University and currently is a senior associate at Rainmaker Strategic Solutions, a government and commercial contractor. She served as APHA APPM president, APHA foundation director, and currently is on the American Pharmacists Association Board of Trustees. Wendy is passionate about policy and has served in the APHA House of Delegates for 20 years. She has spent the majority of her pharmacy career in clinical and administrative positions within academic medical centers focused on pediatrics, neonatology, critical care, and emergency medicine. Wendy, thanks for being here with me today. As we get started, maybe can you talk a little bit about your background, about where you grew up, your family, and your pharmacy experience at North Dakota State University? Sure, thanks for having me, Melissa. It's great to be here today. As you said, I am a proud North Dakota State University graduate. I grew up in North Dakota. So living in Nebraska now, I tell people that I moved south for warmer winters, but I'm seriously questioning that this winter. For sure, right? (laughs) Uh, We've had more snow than they have, which is just wrong if you ask me, but my kids love it, so I go with it. But anyway, yes, I did grow up in North Dakota. When I was in high school, I never thought that pharmacy would actually be my career path. In fact, there's really no, not many people in my family that have medical backgrounds at all. I have one other cousin that's a pharmacist, and I think a couple that are nurses, but the nurses are younger than I am, and the, the pharmacist is only a few years older than me. But I started working at Osco Drug when I was 16 years old, just doing front-end sales, working in the camera department, cashiering, stocking shelves and all that. But I was always kind of curious as to what they did back in the pharmacy, so much so that when I had the opportunity to go back and help them, I would. Um, Definitely did not see it as a career path at all at that point in time. In fact, I thought I was going to be an accountant. I love math. I've always been good at math. I just assumed that was a natural career path for me. But that sort of curiosity, I went back and I helped them just, you know, bring out customers. There was an opportunity for me to become a tech when I was a senior in high school. So I became a pharmacy tech at that point in time and just really kind of fell in love with it. And sort of around that late junior year, early senior year in high school, and that's when my thought processes kind of shifted 
North Dakota State was the only school in the at that time in the state that had the pharmacy program still is actually. So it was sort of my only option for schools other than going out of state. And I was all about paying in-state tuition. Right. Um, and, yeah. also, <laughs> and also wanted to be closer to home. So I did my first two years of college at a local university, the University of Mary, so that I could stay at home. My mom actually forced me to live in the dorms my freshman year because she wanted me to have that college experience. I'm not exactly sure why, because I think I was at home more than I was in the dorms, um, just because it was closer to work and everything else, but a lot of fun, still have some great friends, uh, roommates that I talk to to this day. So it definitely was a good experience. Um, And then moved to Fargo, North Dakota State University for my pharmacy school education, pretty much fell in love with the school. And to this day, I am still a bison through and through. I have season tickets to football, even though I don't go to most of the games. Um, They're sort of a hot commodity when you're kind of the the top dog in the FCS division. So (laughs) I never have a problem selling them should people want them. So, but yeah, I'm a bison through and through. I am the supportive wife of a Husker fan, um, but that's about as far as it goes. I got it. Wow. (laughs) Well, and that's interesting too. When I was doing research to get ready for our discussion today, I did learn about bison and I think when you and I have talked about the pronunciation. So walk us through some people on the, that are listening, get it. It's bison. It's even though it's spelled B-I-S-O-N, it's more of a Z sound than an S sound. And you can pretty much always tell when somebody is not from the area or familiar with it because they'll call it the bison instead of the bison. (laughs) Got it. So more like the French pronunciation with the the Z. I guess so, even though that's really not a large French area of the country. But yeah, probably. Oh, good. Well, you know, I thought that was so interesting when you described your path that, you know, you were working at the OSCO and in the camera department. And it is it is cool to think about sometimes just that experience of getting pulled back there, how that changed the trajectory of your life, really, when you think about it, you know, and that you thought you were going to do a certain thing. So I, I think it's interesting for our listeners to just be open that you sort of never know when these experiences are going to come in front of you, right? Yeah, absolutely. I would have bet money back then that I would have been an accountant and I clearly am not. Well, I'm glad that you had that experience for all of us in pharmacy at that ASCO. Well, you know, you you talked about how you decided to become a pharmacist and I know your North Dakota State College of Pharmacy experience was a, a really positive one. It, it was at that time that you also got involved in national leadership. So let's talk a little bit more about your experiences in leadership as a student pharmacist. And then I know you were a part uh, in 2019, APHA ASP celebrated 50 years. So tell me more about all of that. Yeah, so as a student pharmacist, I got involved early on with APHA ASP. At that time, you know, they were really the only student pharmacy organization that was present on all campuses. You know, we had Phi Lambda Sigma, and then, you know, the fraternity, sorority type um, things like Kappa Psi, and I think Kappa Epsilon, I think was the other one at the time. But it was one of those where I really didn't want to go down the fraternity or sorority path, having been a little, you know, already being a junior when I transferred to NDSU. So that wasn't any, the Greek life wasn't something that really piqued my interest, but I wanted to be involved with pharmacy organizations because I, to this day, still believe that I don't want non-pharmacists telling me how to be a pharmacist. 
Got it. So that comes down to that advocacy piece. And so I just got involved. I had the opportunity to go to the University of Utah School on Alcoholism and Drug Dependencies that at that time. And that was life changing for me, not only from the content that I learned and really eye opening in that respect, but from the people that I was able to meet. There were ASP national officers there and you got to meet them and realize that they're students just like me. Um, you got to meet other students from across the country. There were, you know, there were students there from almost every pharmacy school in the U.S. So getting to know them and seeing that their journey and what they were learning and struggling with in school was very similar to mine. And it was just one of those things where I was just like, I really liked what I saw the national officers doing. And I'm just kind of thought to myself, I could do that. Yeah. They're no different than me. I can do that. And so I ran for a regional delegate that fall was unsuccessful, but didn't give up. I threw my name in the hat to run for member at large and was successful in my election for the national member at large. Um, So that was probably one of the best experiences of my student career, just by being able to meet so many other students and see how, you know, education was a little bit different depending on what school you're at. We were learning the same things, but it was how we were learning it that was different. You know, the way our coursework was designed versus the format of other schools' coursework and stuff, which I never would have thought that. You know, the other thing is, is I'm this girl from North Dakota who has not been very worldly. You know, our biggest city was a metropolitan area of about 75,000 people. There was just so much out there of the, you know, the country to see that being that national officer gave me that opportunity because we were doing student outreach visits where between the five of us, we would visit the different schools and colleges of pharmacy across the country. So I got to meet so many more people, but also, you know, got to see what life was like in some of these other places of the country that I would probably to this day would never even visit either, you know, so it was just really a lot of fun. And that kind of put that bug in me that I wanted to stay involved. I loved what I was doing. I loved that networking and getting out there and meeting all of these other people and just saw it as an opportunity for me to, you know, sort of, I guess, leave my mark on the profession for lack of a better phrase, but also to know that if I go somewhere and I need a couch to crash on, I know somebody. If I am struggling with a question at work, I have somebody that I can probably reach out to that may have seen a similar situation. When I was unemployed because my employer downsized a couple years ago, I had this network of people that really tried to connect me to jobs that helped me build my own business, gave me some projects that they were working on because they had their own businesses. So it was really a blessing to me at that time, just that network that I created. And that all started when I was a student. Wow. And I love that, you know, one of the ways that you came to it was through advocacy, that you saw the important role for student pharmacists and pharmacists themselves to have in our future. And, you know, we'll touch on that more throughout our discussion today. But, you know, I think figuring out what organizations you want to belong to. And I know sometimes for students or residents or people earlier in their career, it can be like overwhelming. Like, I don't have time, you know, it's another thing mm-hmm. to do. But but what you touched on was the relationships and the connections that really not just change your, your professional life, but they changed your life, right? Oh, absolutely. I have people that I 
never would have met otherwise, you know, and individuals that have been mentors to me through various things over the years, you know, Jan Skelton, who's been a great mentor to me, was staff at APHA when I was a student, and she is a dear friend of mine to this day. You know, Angela Cassano, we met as students. I was at North Dakota State. She was at Campbell University. You know, there's no way our paths would have crossed otherwise. But again, a great friend, somebody who has, you know, been a mentor to me in my business and things that I have done in my life, if it wouldn't have been for those connections that I made as a student, I mean, I would, I would struggle and I would have struggled at various points in my life, especially with my career. Yeah. And I like too, how you maintain those connections. You know, I think it's important too, because, you know, the student environment, like you said, you were able to travel and do certain things. And I think sometimes people think, well, is it over then, you know, once I get out in the real world and the work (laughs) world and what you just shared with us is no, it's not over. It can in fact get better. You know, it, it evolves and it's a different way. But I think your comments about, you know, the connections and the outreach and that there's a couch or someone that you can connect with. I mean, that really is a great example of the pharmacy family that we have that we're so fortunate to be a part of the profession with like that. Oh, absolutely. And the one thing I will say, you know, kind of to follow up on your point about those connections and people thinking that it's over when you're no longer a student, it's over if you let it be over. Good point. Yeah. I chose not to let it be over because when after I graduated, I stayed involved with APHA. I ran for, you know, section offices. I continued to attend the meetings. I continued to participate in the House of Delegates. You know, not everybody has to serve in an elected leadership position within whatever organization you choose to be a part of. It's about showing up and being present and participating. And right now in a very, in a virtual world, it looks differently, but there are still those opportunities to volunteer and to stay connected to people because you truly never know where your career path is going to take you. And you don't know where your personal life is going to take you. I mean, if I counted the number of pharmacists married to pharmacists that met through APHA meetings, I would run out of fingers and toes trying to count them all. Yes, yes, for sure. (laughs) Well, you know, in my introduction of you, I talked about integrating life and career. And I know that you're a mom with littles, with young kids, age three and six. And each day, I'm sure, is an adventure. So tell me more, you know, on the podcast, we've talked a lot about people's experiences through the pandemic and in 2020. What was it like for your family, especially during those early stay-at-home times? So life with little kids at home is an adventure anytime. Yes. Um, <laughs> we were fortunate to have that our our time and my kids are little enough where I don't think the the pandemic is going to leave a lasting impression on them although my 6-year-old still tells me stories about when she was a baby that I can't vouch for but you know everything happened when she was a baby if you ask her. Got it. <laughs> but you know there's those things that we have done you know I, I call us that we were pre-k failures when it came to homeschooling so when everything shut down and kids went to remote learning in March my daughter was in pre-k and so they you know had packets that they would send home and we, we would do our best to try to get through them but I'm also trying to work my husband is 
a firefighter and works 24 hour shifts. So, you know, he's gone a lot, especially, you know, like in the evenings and stuff. So, you know, a lot of it was just trying to keep your head above water. But by the end of the third week, I just declared us pre-K failures because I was tired of trying to fight with my child to actually do her work. Um, they would do Zoom meeting once a week and she would typically hide underneath the kitchen table instead of letting them see her face. And it was one of those where I'm just like, you know what, she knows what she needs to know to start kindergarten. We're going to say a lot of prayers that we are in person come fall. And yeah. <laughs> otherwise, I, I think my child probably wouldn't be in kindergarten right now if I would have had to do homeschooling. And I, and I say that lightly because I know we would have done it and we would have found a way to make it work for us. But it, it's challenging, you know, because they don't necessarily understand why they can't play with the neighbor across the street, right. you know, and they understand that there's this big bad germ and, you know, masks are a part of our daily lives. My daughter wears one to school every day, all day. You know, my son doesn't have to at daycare. And fortunately, our daycare was open the entire time because I think I probably would have went crazy if I had had to keep both of them at home through those early stages of the pandemic. But, you know, you adapt and you learn. And it's been kind of fun because we've dug out some of the things that I probably wouldn't have done with my kids otherwise. Like we dug out my grandmother's donut hole recipe and we made donut holes one day. Ooh, you know, yeah. we, <laughs> we made my dad a birthday cake and my kids sang to him over Zoom and we enjoyed the cake while he, you know, was 600 plus miles away. You know, so there, there's things that you do that you just, make make it fun and you try to find creative things we spent a lot of time in our inflatable pool in the backyard and you know it's we adapt as we go I think for me it's probably a good thing that I'm an older than average mom because I would probably have been a lot more stressed out than I am and now it's just you kind of take it one day at a time and you go with it you know roll with the punches and whatever happens happens and it is what it is yeah, I think those examples you gave, and thank you for sharing and your vulnerability on it too, because I think everyone's just trying to figure it out, whatever that looks like. And, you know, like you said, you tried some things and then you realized, okay, you know, a pivot, maybe those worksheets weren't working for your, especially if your daughter's under the table. That's kind of funny, actually. And I appreciate that you were able to return to some family traditions with the donut holes. We pulled out some old, old time recipes from my grandma and my sister and I both made them over Zoom with her kids. So that's really fun. And, and that's really neat. You know, we talked about your journey and you staying involved and then also about your kids. And I know that family and career has been really important to you as you've stayed engaged in the profession. So what does that look like for you? And I guess a question that I have, and I think a lot of our listeners would have is, how'd you do it? It takes a village. <laughs> I have, you know, my, my family has always been incredibly supportive. My husband has always been of the mindset, yeah, if you want to do it, do it. You know, I'm the only one that holds me back if I choose not to do something. Um, so when I ran for... APHA APPM Academy president, and that comes, it's a four-year term. Your first year, you're president-elect, two years as president, and a year as immediate past president. Well, those two years as president, you were also on the APHA board of trustees. So there's a lot more meetings and things that go with it that are in DC and, you know, the annual meeting and things like that. So definitely more travel those two years. Well, when I started down that path, I didn't have any children. I wasn't pregnant. It was, you know, life as usual. And when I started my term on the APHA Board of Trustees and as APPM president, my daughter was seven weeks old. Wow. So, 
it was, and the annual meeting was in San Diego. So there's this, you know, question in my mind, like, are you crazy for trying to do this with an infant? And I, it was just one of those where it was not really negotiable for me. I committed to this. I was going to fulfill that commitment and whatever I needed to do to make it work, I would work, you know, make it work. And my employer was supportive. So that helped. Yeah. Um, my parents have always been incredibly supportive and my mom just happened to retire the May before my daughter was born. So that helped out immensely. So having retired grandparents is a blessing because that means they can come visit, they can travel. Yeah. Um, so they've sort of been my, my babysitters. Most of my APHA family knows my parents just as well as they know me because they show up to the meetings and they, you know, chase after kids now when we go to the meetings. So my daughter at seven weeks old, leaving her behind at home wasn't really an option because I was breastfeeding at the time. And you're still in those, you know, that bonding phase of their care. And so yeah, my parents and my daughter came with to San Diego. She had her first plane ride when she was seven weeks old. I gave her her two-month vaccines at six weeks because I wanted her vaccinated before we got on the plane. And we made it work. And, you know, everybody loved her. And when she's not at a meeting now, they ask where she's at. Um, I think she gets more attention than I do when it comes to some of that stuff. But yeah, I did board meetings, taking her alone. When she was right around three months old, she slept on the on the table. She slept under the floor at the boardroom table for various meetings. And some of them, my parents would go. My husband went with one of them and just, you know, took care of her. My parents went to Seattle with both of my children because my mom has a brother that lives out not far from the area. So we were able to catch up with them and their kids and stuff. So it's it's been a lot of fun, but it, it takes a village and having that support system has been key to to my success and being able to stay involved rather than having to pay somebody to you know take care of my kids my parents have definitely stepped up to the plate and spend a lot of time at my house when I travel for meetings so they're my babysitters while my husband has to work I I think it takes a village is so important and also to be creative about it you know like you you talked about how you pulled it together and what it looks like and boy, that's so such special time that your children are having with their grandparents, you know, that I think they'll treasure. And I think the other thing to keep in mind too, is this level of leadership that I chose to be at isn't necessarily the path for everybody. Mine, it just happened to fall that way because I had already committed to the position, you know, long before I ever found out that I was expecting. And so that part, I couldn't really change too much, but I would also say that, you know, not every level of leadership requires that level of travel, right? you know, and the the on-site meetings, you know, and especially now, I think we're seeing how we can, you know, reinvent some of our meetings to do more of this virtual world where it doesn't require that travel. And even when we have board meetings via Zoom, you know, it's not uncommon for me to have a child sitting on my lap while I'm, I have my headset on and I'm participating in the meeting and stuff, you know, they sit and they make faces and wave at everybody, you know, so maybe a little bit disruptive and distracting to some folks, but, you know, it, it keeps it real. Yeah, I think that's, that's the big thing. And, you know, you don't have to put your volunteer leadership aspirations on hold, because you have a family, it's possible to do it at the same time. It's just a matter of, making sure that everybody is aware that, yeah, I have young kids and they're going to 
crash a Zoom meeting. It's no different than somebody who has a dog and you hear their dog barking in the background or, you know, sitting on their lap or doing funny things in the background. We're, we're real and we're human. And anybody who thinks that you can't have children, career, volunteer, and all of that stuff is misguided in their thinking in today's society. Well, I think that's an interesting segue. You know, this past year has just been an explosion related to working from home and meetings going virtual. So since you've done a lot of that, what tips would you share with our listeners for Zoom meetings and virtual connections? Tell me more about that, what that looks like for you. So when I have a Zoom meeting and I know that I'm going to be on camera, I dress for the meeting. Like for me, that's sort of being able to get myself into that mindset that I am going to be present, whether I'm present through a computer screen or I'm present in a meeting room. I'm going to show up as I would show up regardless of the location. So if I'm going to show up, you know, like I just crawled out of bed and I have my, you know, I, I have my comfy pants on, I'm not going to lie, but I'm going to put on a nice shirt and a nice sweater or something like that so that what they see on a camera is exactly what they would see if I was standing in front of them in a room. So for me, that's always been very important is, you know, to show up for the meeting as you would show up in person um, when it comes to the virtual meetings. And I am one that I do not like the virtual backgrounds. You know what? My house is messy. Get used to it. <laughs> now, I'm not going to show you the Barbie explosion on my living room floor. I'm going to show you, you know, something on my wall or, you know, you might see my bookshelf behind me with, you know, other random things sitting on it that probably don't belong there. Um, I used to have my office in my unfinished basement. You would see my exposed rafters and, you know, bare yeah. walls and things around me, but it, it's, it's real. So for me, it's, I'm not going to pretend to be somebody I'm not. So if you see my messy life in the background, that's who I am. And you don't get just the professional me that shows up to a meeting. You're going to get the messy me at the same time because that, that is my life. That is who I am. And I'm not going to hide behind that anymore. It's about being authentic and letting people see the real you. Yeah, I love that. Sharing the messy me and being authentic. I think that is so important right now because people are just doing the best that they can, right? You know, and each day seems to be a new adventure, but also I think it's positive that we can still connect. And I've actually been on Zoom meetings where I've seen some of those rafters or, you know, unfinished basements. I was actually working out doing a live stream and there was someone who was in, in their unfinished basement section, or it was an unfinished room, I couldn't tell exactly. But so I know exactly what you're speaking about. So that's, that's very, you know, now, don't, don't take me to the bathroom with you. Yeah, I Why? hear you, right? <laughs> yeah. But I, I'm good seeing, you know, your, your messy bookshelves or walls or the Barbie dream house in the background, because that's, that's who we are. Yeah, that, that, thank you. That, that's kind of fun. Well, you and I have known each other a long time and a thread throughout that has been your support of giving back and helping others. And you've touched on this earlier about people that have impacted you in your life. There's this group, this amazing group called Angela's Angels. So how did you get involved in that group? Tell us more what it's all about and the impact that Angela's Angels has had over the years. So Angela's Angels is a group of dedicated women and men who rallied around a friend. And so Angela Cassana, who I had mentioned a little bit earlier, 
her, she and I met when we were in pharmacy school. She was diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh gosh, it's probably 13, 14 years ago now. Yeah, that um, sounds about right. Yeah. And so a, a young mom when she was diagnosed and as a celebration of her first anniversary as a survivor, she and our mutual friend Jan Skelton were kind of brainstorming and trying to figure out like what could they do to celebrate her being a survivor. And Jan had participated in the Avon Walk for Breast Cancer um, several years before that. And I think you actually did it with her. I, I did. I did. Yes. <laughs> Um, and so they they researched it and re- saw that, you know, they were still doing it. It was a little bit different format than what they had been doing previously when Jan did it, did it the first time. And so they decided they were going to do this walk together. So it was a marathon on Saturday and a half marathon on Sunday. They did these walks. Oh, I don't know. I think in probably about six to eight cities across the country, usually between May and October. And they picked New York City to do the walk. And Angela just happened to send out this fundraising email because part of the commitment to walk was raising $1,800 for each walker. And if you didn't raise that money, you were responsible to pay the difference. And so she sent out this fundraising email. But at the end of the email, she had, you know, a kind of a comment in there that if you want to walk, let me know. We'd love to have you join us. And so I read that and I kind of thought about it and I'm like, oh, I'm definitely going to donate to the cause. But you know, there was just something sort of tugging on me to, to do the walk. Uh-huh. And so I had responded back to her a few weeks afterwards and said, you know, I'm definitely going to support it but I'm honestly thinking about walking. And she's like, oh my gosh, that would be great to have you join us. And so that first year I did, I signed up to walk and it was just, it was the three of us walking and then Angela's mom was on the volunteer crew. And that was the first year of 10 years of completing the walk. I think when we finished the first one, we kind of all thought that, you know, we would never do it again, but lo and behold, the next year rolls around and we all sign up to do it again. And We grew our team. I think one year we had, oh, probably close to 10 or 12 of us walking. Um, But Angela and I were the two that did it all 10 years. Jan did not participate the one year that her husband had passed away. But otherwise, yeah, we had this mighty team of walkers. Angela's mom was right there on the volunteer crew every single year. Her dad walked with us many years. So I say men and women rallying around a cause because, you know, it was really her dad was, was our man that joined us. But we loved Papa T and having him walk with us and, yeah, so I don't know what the final total was, but I think our tiny little team raised well over $50,000 in the course of the 10 years that we did the walk. Well, I just think that's an amazing story. You and I share a love and friendship with Angela. You know, I think mm-hmm. she's, I, I just think so highly of her and I got to meet her, know her as a student. And then over the years, she did a great amount of work for the Pharmacy Technician Certification Board. She's passionate about health system pharmacy and pharmacy technicians and you know, just to see her engagement and then the fun that you all had over the years. I, You are correct. I did do the walk with Jan. We did a 60 mile one a few years before. And for me, one was enough. Um, you know, I, I really loved it. And I loved raising money for breast cancer and breast cancer awareness. And I loved supporting you all. I was on your cheering squad many years <laughs> and, you know, financially supporting you and also sending you texts and cheering and making signs and things like that. But I think it's a cool thing. And then I think if I remember right, Wendy, from pictures over the years, didn't you walk one year when you were pregnant? 
Yes. In fact, I walked twice when I was pregnant. The The second time was unbeknownst to me at the time. But yeah, I was 23 weeks pregnant with my oldest the one year when we did the walk. And it was kind of funny because, you know, I had been in very close contact with my doctor leading up to it and make, making sure that, you know, she was okay with it. And, and she said, you know, she's like, I have no problem. She's like, if you feel good, you know, you walk. She's like, if, if it starts to hurt or things don't feel good, she's like, I expect you to stop. And, you know, so I had, you know, her blessing, right. but also her, her marching orders that came with it. And yeah, so I, and I had walked a lot that year leading up to it. The first year, I will say they, they kind of laughed because I was overtrained for it um, because I had walked up to, I think probably about 16 miles at one time in preparation for it and realized that I completely overtrained for it. So then you kind of stop training and realizing that if I'm going to do this pregnant, I probably should do some training. So I was, I was prepared. My body was ready for it, but you know, I also went in with the mindset that I had no intentions of doing the whole thing. Right. I walked yeah. the whole thing, Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I was feeling good. You know, I never had any issues, you know, probably a little bit of a little more leg swelling at the end of the day than usual. But uh, yeah, I just kept on walking and, you know, one foot in front of the other. And the next thing you know, you're done. Well, you know, I'm, I'm appreciate you sharing that little tidbit because I think it's important for our listeners, especially in these times right now, like this whole philosophy of you can do hard things. And I think training for a marathon or a big walk or doing a physical challenge, whatever that is, it's so empowering, you know, to think, okay, I can do this. And also, you know, what I found when Jan and I did the walk, and I think you all shared this over those 10 years doing Angela's Angels together is the camaraderie. Like, you know, when you're walking with a group of people for that long, you talk about all kinds of things and you laugh and you, you know, oh, you, yeah. you, you know, you look at what's, you guys walked through New York so you could see like the sites and we walked from Maryland down to DC and, you know, it's just an amazing thing, but I think it's important to share so that people get that, you know, you may have something like kind of on your bucket list or something physically that would be challenging. And you're thinking, should I try it or should I do it? And I know speaking for myself, and it sounds like what you described to at first, I was like, well, I can always stop. Like, I don't know that yeah. I could do it, but, <laughs> but, you know, if, if after day two and I've done 40 miles, you know, may, but then at a certain point, you're like, I'm going, I'm going, I can do this. Right. Yeah. And it's funny because they do have like a pace walker and she has on very eye-catchy attire so that you can't miss her. And so I, the first year we found ourselves because we kept on stopping to take pictures and really were playing tourist most of the time. Uh, we found ourselves racing against the the caboose, basically is what they called her. And so if you were behind her at a certain point, they put you in the sweep vans and move oh. you on to the next stop. So yeah found ourselves uh, racing against her more than once because of our, our gawking, I guess, for lack of a better word, you know, trying to pay attention to all of the sites and taking it all in because, I mean, I hadn't been to New York City since I was in high school and stuff, you know, and you're walking past all of these landmarks and things and you're just like, this is cool, you know, so you get very caught up in the moment and then you're like, oh my, we better get moving. <laughs> yeah, you, you for sure don't want to be in this. I mean, you might need to be in the sweep van, especially if you get injured, but you know, you don't want, you don't want to be in it because you got, you went a little slow. So, exactly. Um, well, our time together today is drawing to a close and on each of the podcasts I ask at the end, you know, while I have you, is there one prescription or life lesson you'd like to share with others or comment on in the spirit of Melissa Rx scripts? Sure. So I think my prescription would be that the only thing in life we can control is our own behavior and attitudes. 
So how we react to a situation is completely up to us. We can decide to take the negative side or we can try to choose to find the positive in the situation. And regardless of what the situation may be at the time, there is always something positive that can be learned from it. And I think back to, you know, when my employer downsized and my position was eliminated, you know, you think that's kind of the end of the world at the time, but, you know, there were so many blessings that came out of it. And I wouldn't have the position that I have right now where I'm able to work from home. I can take my kids to school every day. You know, if I want to pick them up right after school or make them go to aftercare, you know, that's my choice, but I don't have to feel like they're getting the short end of the stick, which you know, in my previous position, they definitely would have been getting the short end of the stick. So, you know, there's always a positive to find somewhere. And it allowed me to rebuild some relationships with people that I hadn't talked to in a long time as well. So, I, you know, you can choose to to wallow in self-pity or you can choose to move forward. And that was my approach was I choose to move forward. So the only thing in life we can control are our own behaviors and attitudes. Wow. Thank you. Choose to move forward. I love that. And that is a good way for us to close. Well, Wendy, I just want to say thanks so much for sharing your your time today and your story. It was so special. This is the Melissa Arcscripts podcast. I want to thank our listeners and encourage you to follow us on social media. And I also want to give a special thank you to Kate Cruz, my producer with Executive Podcast Solution, who helps us make the magic happen. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Melissa.